collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Thank you for coming for another episode of Collective Power. My guest today is Adam. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Adam. Help me here. Serlin. Serlin. Yes. So welcome to Adam Serlin for being on the show with us today. Adam, tell us a little bit what you do. So I am currently a Stonely Fellow. So I am on a three-year fellowship provided by the Stonely Foundation to do some performance management and data work in the juvenile justice system up here. So I'm partner with the Center for Government Excellence, uh, Johns Hopkins University. I've been doing some work with some stakeholders in Philadelphia who are interested in trying to look at how they're performing and how maybe we could do better for kids in the city. What? That was a mouthful. What does a performance data management person do? Right. So that's a great question. In juvenile well, justice, right? Like if you could give us a little bit of an example of, you know, what kind of things take your day up. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually come from a provider side of things. So I spent my whole career prior to this working in programs, trying to keep kids out of detention centers and keep them in the community. Ultimately, I started to ask some questions about, you know, how are my programs doing? How are we doing with, say, boys versus girls or African-American kids versus white kids and so on and so forth? And just even what we were doing, right? And began to realize that a lot of programs aren't geared towards any sort of outcome that you can measure. And there aren't a lot of ways to tell even folks who want to see how well they're doing how well they're doing or, or how they can make adjustments to services based upon how they're performing in the best interest of kids. So part of it is there's lacks of data. Part of it is, you know, lack of interest. But my job now is to try and help people kind of think about the services they're providing, come up with strategies as how maybe they could do things differently and use data that shows how they're performing to kind of come up with new strategies as to how to make things better for kids across a variety of different, you know, ways to do so. So you're a big picture person. So you get to actually crunch numbers to look at how people are generating results, either across a program or different programs and make recommendations about how to move forward. Yeah, but big pictures can also be little pictures, right? There's not a huge amount of kids in juvenile justice system. And so if you're, if you're looking at a couple thousand kids, in Philly, you mean, right? Yeah. So if you're, say, you know, a difference between maybe a performance management versus an academic research paper is 
You know, I'm more interested in, hey, what happened last week to those 10 kids? And could we have done better for those 10 kids? And maybe next week, let's try and do better for the next 10 kids. So while data can be big, you can start to, you know, look at management and strategies on a pretty granular levels because a lot of things come down to individuals making decisions. So the more you can put systems in place to see that, the quicker you can kind of respond and you can try and make things better for right the next five kids you don't need to wait three years for somebody to, to publish a report on 3,000 kids I love that it's like you're paying attention to the mini trends instead of having to wait for a big number of people to hit a wall that's yes. wonderful I always like to start the show with tell us a personal story so my question is tell us a personal story about yourself that has us like understand my the human behind the numbers right yeah but also gives us a sense for why you became passionate about this like why do you or maybe you're not passionate about this i don't know i'm assuming you are but yeah. um like why you ended up doing this work with juvenile justice yeah, so I am, I would say, product of a Quaker education system. So growing up, I, uh, you know, went to a Quaker school. So civil disobedience, but care for the community, all these things were kind of ingrained in me. And, you know, I went to college. I was a big brother in college, but I really wanted to be a writer and a musician. So when I came back to Philly, my goal was, you know, I had a band, I was writing a book. And I was into, you know, social justice issues, but I took a part-time job as an advocate in an in-home detention program. So a program where kids were not allowed to leave their house. They were in the juvenile justice system unless they were with an advocate who picked them up and spent, you know, 22 hours a week driving them around, coming up with activities. So I was one of those folks. And, you know, very quickly, I didn't, this was an kind of I fell into this career a little bit, uh, you know, nonprofit can be a little sloppy sometimes. So, you know, within a year, year and a half, I was a manager of a program. Um, and I really always thought I was going to end up probably getting fired, not for doing anything bad per se, but for, I really only ever cared about, I wanted long term to write and play music. So I was, you know, I'm going to push as hard as possible for my kids' best interests at all times. And you know, there's certain things, you know, if, if a kid's discharged from your program, you're not supposed to speak with them anymore, which I don't necessarily agree with in systems. I understand for therapy why maybe that's an inappropriate relationship. But if you have a kid that you mentored for a long time, just because they're no longer in the juvenile justice system, if they call you and they're going through a life issue, you know, I never really thought that that was a great rule that you should ignore their calls, right? Maybe you were the one person who they could talk to. So, you know, things like that, I would always push and ended up running a bunch of programs and doing a lot of things with music, building music programs, and sports programs and things like that, all to try and keep kids out of the deepest ends of the system. And then, you know, ultimately started to kind of question, I remember for the first time I, I produced a, a pie chart, basic, how are we doing in terms of positive versus negative outcomes? And it was more negative than positive. And that was you know, pretty stunning to me because everyone had always said my programs were so good or, you know, we were providing the best services. And, and, you know, the numbers said that even if that may have been the case, we still, a lot of our kids were still quote unquote failing in these programs. And so I certainly never thought I was going to be a data person. My undergraduate degrees in creative writing, I do have my master's in public administration, but I kind of got into this reluctantly because there was just such a lack 
of outcomes and data that started kind of doing it myself. And that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Thank you. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with why people who don't have a personal experience care. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what in your personal experience had you connect with the field and say, I want to do something about it? Well, kids are kids, right? And so I was always in the field working with kids. And whether you have a personal experience of being arrested or not, if you hang out with a bunch of kids and those kids happen to be cool kids, then you care about them. And if some of them, you know, unfortunately get shot or if some of them may be, you know, even pregnant and you see them taken out of a courtroom in handcuffs or some of them may have just had a child and maybe are trying to take care of, might be, uh, a 17 year old boy trying to take care of his newborn baby and is still sent away for missing certain probation appointments or, or not going to school when he's the primary caretaker for a son that was born blind, you know, things like that you see. And it's tough if you care about people at all, like it doesn't really matter. You know, we're very quick to label kids. If someone gets arrested for punching someone then we try and make, Oh, this is an aggravated assault kid or if someone, sells drugs. Oh, this is a, a drug selling kid, but you know, they're just kids and research would show, right. You know, kids in the suburbs sell drugs as much as kids inner city communities. And so the labeling of children as even juvenile justice kids or child welfare kids is a little to me absurd on the face of it that we always try and put kids into buckets, but they're just kids and kids sometimes make bad decisions and the kids who make bad decisions sometimes don't have ideal home lives. And the kids who have ideal home life don't have ideal home lives sometimes also get arrested. So why do we even always split things in a child welfare, juvenile justice? It's just children a lot of times living in unfortunate circumstances. And it's, it's tough if you build connections with anyone to see them go through things and not care. Did you ever wonder if that kid could have been you? Well... I am a white person that was born in Morristown, New Jersey, which is a pretty affluent suburb. So the way that the system is set up, unfortunately, that kid is almost never me uh, in the juvenile justice system. So yeah, it could have been me if you look at my hometown, right? Plenty of kids did stupid things and they weren't policed the same way. And it had I entered a juvenile justice system and certain things happened to me. I mean, both my parents were attorneys. There, I had all these protections, both structurally and in the way I grew up, that had huge barriers. My behavior probably was no different, right? So for sure, it could have been me. I, I got very fortunate to have certain things in place that made it that it wasn't me. But unfortunately, the way that things are set up, like, it, yeah, it doesn't often happen to me, the person who was born in Morristown, New Jersey, as you know, a white kid who went to a, a private Quaker school for growing up. You wonder all the time, could it have been me? But it wasn't honestly a fear of mine growing up in the way it's a fear of other people's because it, it just, that's not a way, unfortunately, things are set up currently. So what do you think are the biggest misperceptions people have of the juvenile justice system? I think that there is a big misperception at the moment that the system is performing much better than it is. 
there are a lot less children that are arrested now than there used to be. And that's going on across the whole country. So, right, adolescent arrests have been declining normally, like in terms of broadly, but we do a thing in juvenile justice and in most of these social services where, right, if we want to talk data for a second, right, there's a talk in, you know, lean startup or lean impact about vanity metrics versus learning metrics. And your learning metrics are, you want to be able to learn from your data. And so if you have a million people visiting a website every day, that might not be important to your business if none of them click through the website and ultimately purchase something, right? That's not a learning metric. You can say, we have a great website because a million people are visiting it. In juvenile justice, what we do all the time is we look at the end of the system and say, all right, placement. We had 500 kids in placement last year, and now we only have 450. So we're doing better because there's only 450 kids being sent to placement. But if you have way, way, way Did less you say kids- what placement means? Oh, good. Yes. Placement is when you are removed from your home and sent away for a period of time because you've been adjudicated delinquent, i.e. in the adult system found guilty of what you allegedly did, and you have been found to no longer be able to be treated in the community. So that's the thing. It's the deepest end of the system. That is the thing most people point to, and we do not want our kids in placement. But if you have less kids in placement in you know, this year versus last year, that doesn't mean your system is much healthier. There could have been way less kids entering your system. Or there could be a bunch of kids awaiting getting sent to placement, but it takes longer to get there. There's all these different things. And so we as a system just continue to do this thing of aggregate numbers and say, this thing happened to 50 kids instead of 60 kids, so we're better. And there's a lot of ways we've used these numbers to tell a story that the system is uh, improving. And when you, you know, really slice numbers a different way and look at disproportionality, like that's not getting any better. And what is the percentage of kids who could have gone to placement who did go to placement? There's a lot of different questions to ask. And so I think that there's been some narratives about system performance that perhaps are not super accurate when you really, you peel back and, and start to take a look at percentages. Could yes. you tell us a little bit more about disproportionality and what questions would you ask around disproportionality that aren't always being asked? So I think disproportionality is interesting. There can be a misperception if your system is overwhelmingly black, right? And you look decision point by decision point, it's easy to say, well, and it does appear, right, that black youth are more likely at every decision point mostly to penetrate the system further. But it's also, right, if it is overwhelmingly only black children entering the system, right, there's a front end disproportionality that, you know, even if you hit a decision point to say, like, hold a kid in detention or not hold a kid in detention, if the black kid and the white kid are not treated differently at that decision point, but there's almost no white kids who reach that decision point, it's an interesting look at disproportionality. So you can look and say, well, yeah, it didn't appear that, you know, the black kid and the white kid were treated differently at this decision point. But if it's almost all black kids and the question is what is happening to every kid at that decision point, because it's all black kids who reach that decision point. Does that make sense? Yeah. So define disproportionality for a second, right? So disproportionality is looking at the percentage of a group in the American population and looking whether they are a higher percentage or a lower percentage at whatever outcome you want to look at. 
right? Co yeah, correct. So, so be proportional right? to the the overall yes population. So in this case, if you're looking at an outcome for black youth, do you be looking at the proportion of black youth in the American population and the proportion that of white youth in the uh, in the American population, and then you'd be comparing. And technically, if there were no racism or no glitch, they should be represented in the same percentage they are in the United States population, correct? Correct, yes. And then, so that's, you know, in terms of entering, so yeah, so you'll see those things sometimes of, right, like black youth represent, you know, 14% of the population, but 30% of a prison population or something like that would show disproportionality. But you can also do it at individual decision points and say, right, of youth who, you know, this judge saw, the judge treated, there was no difference in treatment between the way this judge treated black kids and white kids, right? But if 100% of the kids that the judge saw was black or 99% or 98%, then the actual question you're interested in, because there are very few white youth is, well, how is that judge treating all kids? because you've almost removed the white kids from the sample from the beginning. And so there's two questions would be one, in terms of disproportionality, why is the system so skewed towards only having black youth in it? And then B, when you're looking at what happens to youth at every decision point, like, yes, it is important that when black youth hit a decision point, they're treated equally to white youth when they hit that decision point. But if the system is so skewed that it's only black kids entering, then you really, it's like almost a performance management question of, well, how is that judge treating all children? Because the only children the judge is seeing are black. So, right. Yeah. And what happened right before that decision point, right? Correct. Like what happened right before all the black children ended up in front of this particular judge versus another one. Yeah, and so disproportionality is a particularly sticky issue with juvenile justice, and it, it has not seemed to have gotten much better anywhere. And so some questions exist about, right, at some point in time, you know, why arrests are the way they are. And at this point, it's a question, is it a bug in the system or is it something entrenched as a feature of the system? It seems that it is very tough. People have had a tough time you know, removing this as a feature of the system, despite the fact that there are numerous committees and people who are dedicated to doing so? Yeah, that's a great question you ask. Like, is it so embedded in the system that we can't actually have the current system without disproportionality since we know it crosses all systems? Is it the backbone or can it be tweaked? Is it a feature or is it a backbone? Right. Like, can you have a car without four wheels? Or is it a car without leather seats, right? Like it's like, is it an accessory or is it an integral part of the model, so to speak? Right. So a lot of it has to just do with proximity to policing in general too. It's adolescent behavior is typically adolescent behavior, right? But if there are more adolescents in a place where there are more police and the behavior is also, if police go to a place because maybe there's violence, but there's more adolescents displaying typical adolescent behavior, then there's going to be more of those adolescents that enter a system, right? Just like density, population, proximity to police. And so those are some things that definitely need to get sorted on the front end. And then, yes, you do want to make sure you have implicit bias. So people, you know, everybody comes into the world with the way that they view things that are affected by what you see on TV or how you were raised and it's, it's unconscious on some levels. No one doesn't have 
a form of implicit bias. So then people put risk assessment tools in place to say, all right, to remove implicit bias, we're going to use a mathematical tool to assess risk. So we can say, all right, this decision isn't racist because it was made by a mathematical formula that is applied to everybody. But if the mathematical formula has questions in there of, you know, do you associate with people who um, have committed a crime or who have been arrested and certain neighborhoods have way more people who have been arrested and those neighborhoods happen to be black and not white, then like your risk assessment tool has some bias baked into it as well. So it's, it's just an issue that even the response to try and use objective tools to make decision-making also has bias inherently baked into it, sometimes based upon the questions or right, even number of arrests. If we know that certain populations are likely to be arrested more based upon proximity of police, they might not be found guilty, but they might be arrested more. If number of arrests is taken into account, then yeah, you're, you're setting up a bias tool in that way too. So it's, it's a very complex issue. And the answer is probably somewhere between the two in terms of the way the best approach. What are other misperceptions you think people have? Yeah, I think a big one is, right, you always hear the, you know, obviously the school prison pipeline, but, you know, people want treatment and not prison, treatment, not incarceration. And I think there's a misperception, at least in Philadelphia, right, that there's a lack, that that's an issue. And they're really, most kids, the system is pretty good, I will say, about not just finding a kid, adjudicating a kid delinquent, finding them guilty in the adult system would be the equivalent and sending them away. Most people are given community-based alternatives. If people appear to have a drug problem, whether or not we can talk about addiction versus drug use, which is a, a whole other issue, but right, there's no children really getting turned away from drug and alcohol treatment programs, right? There's no lack of people that are willing to bill Medicaid dollars to provide treatment for children. There is a huge lack, however, of those folks providing treatment, being held accountable to produce outcomes for those children. So if every kid is theoretically getting a community-based alternative, we can all kind of go to sleep at night and feel okay and say, oh, well, we didn't send that kid right to placement. We gave him a mentor for a little while. And then, you know, the kid, we gave him the chance. He, he messed up or she ruined her chance or they did drugs a little bit. We gave them drug and alcohol treatment and they continued, you know, to smoke marijuana. So then it, it very easily shifts the blame to the kid. But if the programs aren't working and they're set up to work, then the, the, the fault is actually with the programs. So I think there's a misperception that like, yeah, maybe a way to fix the system is we just need more programs or we need more treatment. And in fact, that might not be the case, right? We may need better programs and better treatment and more transparency and more oversight, but it is not necessarily a lack of resources. Even when I was a provider, I used to push back a little bit, you know, everyone's, oh, we need more money. We need... There are people are wiping plenty of excess profit into their nonprofit coffers at the end of the year on juvenile justice unless the census dips, right? And then maybe you lose some money, but there's years when people are making 20, 25% profit into the nonprofit, it gets washed at the end of the year. So it's not a lack of resources per se. It is a, uh, it is a management oversight over those resources and making sure that the kids who are supposed to be getting quality services are getting those services and the incentives 
for people to provide those services or not to provide more of those services, right? It's not always, oh, well, we gave him more treatment. And so that's good. Like more treatment can't be bad. If more treatment means a kid is in a program for two more months and was fine, could have been discharged two months prior, but messes up two months later in this program and then gets sent away to placement, then yeah, it was bad. Um, and so we should have shifted those services outside of the system. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think it is not an under-resourced issue or a lack of programming issue. It is a lack of quality program and lacking a lack of oversight issue. And coming back to what you said in the beginning, right, that your job is to actually look at what happened to those 10 kids, right, week by week, look for patterns. And yep. so I think what I hear you saying is that a lot of programs aren't doing that kind of looking for patterns. A lot aren't made to, right? So there's a perverse incentive structure. If programs are billing per kid per day and they're not held accountable to an outcome, you could see pretty quickly how incentives can get perverted a little bit to either treat more kids or treat fewer kids for longer, right? Both of those would be tied to more money if you do a simple formula of like kid per day. Okay, what if there are less kids? Well, if we wanna break even on our budget, we would just charge more days for less kids. In an ideal world, oh wow, we could charge the most days for the most kids. And there's ways that you can kind of lose sight of yourself inside of a system and say like, well, it's not bad, we're giving mentoring, so what's the big deal? Or like we're giving drug and alcohol treatment, so yeah, we're getting paid to do it. And like, why? yeah, so what? The kid, the kid asked to stay in, right? He could have gotten discharged, but he stood up in court and said, no, I, I love being with my mentor. Can I have more time with my mentor? That's sad because he needs to stay in the system to get for the mentor to get paid to continue services. But yeah, so everyone leaves the courtroom and feels good. Ah, oh, the kid loves the program. He has to stay in it even though he could have been discharged. Okay, but like what if the kid then two weeks later fails a drug screen for marijuana, gets put in another program, doesn't succeed, and then fails out entirely? We didn't do a good thing there. So the incentives part is always fascinating. Child welfare has the same incentives, more money for every child, get paid by day. Um, DHS is paid by day. Like the, the state gets reimbursed by the feds per day and per child, and the same is for foster care agencies. And I love how you brought that out in the affinity between juvenile justice and foster care. I, and I, I just, I'm just kind of coming back to something you said earlier and it's really fascinating to me because I always, I've been preaching kind of something similar to what you've been saying, which is that uh, we pretend they're different children and they're often the same children, right? Like child welfare was brought on the ideology of the save the good kids yeah, from the bad sure. parents and juvenile justice is the pretext of save society from the bad kids. And we're often talking about the same kids, but then the systems get paid for a day that the kids are served, quote unquote, which means that the system actually has an incentive to keep on bringing in more and more kids. Any oh, other those incentives in juvenile justice that you know of? What is that? Whatever you wanted to say. Any other of those incentives that you're present to? In I mean, it just incentives are perverted everywhere, right? There's a, in a system with lack of public accountability, the incentive would be to not have accountability, right? There, everybody's a, uh, so like public choice theory of like who pays the cost for any of these things? And it's always either A, the taxpayers are actually paying the physical cost of, right, 
services and children are paying the cost for you're going to make a conservative decision oh well we're worried that this kid might commit a crime and so we're going to hold him in a detention center or her in a detention center well that is mostly based on a fear that if you didn't do that they would commit a crime and then maybe you it would look badly as the adult decision maker that you let somebody out who committed a crime right that's a common thing but there are plenty of kids who that happens to who would not have committed a crime so those would be right that's a false positive that kid has been identified as someone who would have committed a crime and would not have committed a crime we're paying money for something so their taxpayers are paying money for something to happen to them and the kid is paying the cost of it but the decision maker would only in their eyes pay the cost had they released the kid and the kid committed a crime and somebody came and blamed them for it right so it's a pause for a second because i want to explain what the false positive is unless you want to do that yes these decisions are being made through predictive analysis right Right. through formulas and so forth so what's a false positive so a false positive would be so think of it in terms of like medicine if you take a test and say you take a COVID test and someone tells you you have COVID and you don't have COVID. And a false negative would say you do not have COVID and you do have COVID. So in juvenile justice, if someone looked at a kid, whether it's through a test or not, and said, you are going to commit a crime, so we must do X to you, and kid would not have committed a crime, that would be a false positive for that kid. We put an intervention in place for a kid who was not going to do the thing we were worried about. And false negative would be the opposite. Oh, well, we didn't give a kid a thing, and then the kid went on to commit a crime. And so we falsely assume that they weren't going to commit a crime. So really, the adult decision makers, in their eyes, would only be held, the way systems are set up, they would only be held accountable for that false negative. I didn't hold a kid in detention, or I didn't give a kid an intervention, and kid committed a crime. Someone can look and point a finger and blame me. Oh, decision maker X has ruined public safety because they let kid out and kid committed a crime. No one does. Cause that's account. what makes the front page news, right? That that's makes the front page news. It. So people make decisions to avoid that. Right. That would be, it's natural, right? That's like a, right. People are making these day to day decisions on their own risk reward analysis. But the, the only one who pays the price for that false positive, the kid who maybe we overtreated or we overgave that kid something because we were afraid that they were going to commit a crime. The kid is the only one who pays the price because no one is analyzing how many false positives are there in the system. The only way that the incentive structure would change is if people are being held accountable for over treating people. Right. And that's not a thing in the moment. So that would be a, I would say a perverse incentive, although natural on some levels, it's like less nefarious than, you know, billing more for, but it is a misalignment of, I would say, interests. So I want to just boil this down a little bit, like from a data perspective, right? Because you're giving us different angles on what makes both the data analysis tricky and the system reform tricky. Yeah. So one, you talked about lack of accountability, that not always are people actually looking at the data and crunching the numbers. That's one, right? Yeah. Two is you talked about how like sometimes we're looking at the numbers but doing sweeping generalizations instead of looking more in detail. So you gave us the example of like looking at how many children get placed but not looking at how many of those children are white or black or another Asian native 
young, old, whatever, right? Whatever demographic you want to look at, not just race, but others as well. So that's one. So not disaggregating it. It's a technical term for a researcher. And then you talked about the incentives, which create kind of like a hidden dynamic of bringing in more children. And then you talked about the predictive analytics. So the fact that we actually make these decisions based on formulas and those formulas can be skewed too. There are all these different levels. Yeah, and we're not super far down that rabbit hole in Philadelphia at least. Like there are some risk assessment tools that we look at, but yeah, I don't know how many, there are a few points when formulas are being used, but it's not every decision for sure. I don't want to misrepresent that we're not using sentencing formulas or anything like that. But yes, it is an aspect. Gotcha. Yeah. So where do we have collective power? Like where do people actually have the power to change any of this? Yeah. So all of this system relies on, so the juvenile justice system is different than the adult justice system in that encourages subjectivity and decision-making, right? There are no mandatory minimums. And the purpose for that is every child's case is supposed to be examined with the facts of the child's life. So theoretically, can have something like, I'm sure you've talked about crossover court, which is where a child welfare, like the child's home issues and delinquent issues will be addressed in the same courtroom. So well, let's look at, is this really the kid's fault or is there something going on in the house that made them commit the crime? So those are like, the things that are encouraged in juvenile justice. Um, But that gives a lot of power to the judge, right? So the judge is encouraged to make subjective decisions. But we also do have as a city and as a state, we have politically elected and politically retained judges, right? And we have courtrooms that are closed to the media. So you can quickly see how if there's no oversight over you know, judicial decision-making across the state. What do you mean by politically retained judges? Wait, wait, stop for a second. Sorry. Yeah. So if you want to talk about collective power, so judges are politically elected and then they sit for 10 years and then they run unopposed in a retention election where it's a ballot question, should Judge X continue to sit in court, right? That's how judges are retained in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in general, I believe. That's a voting issue. So, you know, we do have politically elected and politically retained judges who do write checks with public money in terms of, you know, when you send a kid somewhere, that's public money that's being sent to one place. All of it, I think there's collective power and accountability. So one, you have a political accountability. Two, there's city council. There's inquiries into what happened in Glen Mills? What happens in this placement facility? Where are the numbers on how much money is being spent. And those things kind of flare up and then get put down or flare up and get put down. But there's a large amount of collective power, I would say, if people continued to push on issues. These things come up in the Philadelphia Inquirer sometimes, and then there's hearing about it here or there. But I don't necessarily know that there's been a ton of accountability uh, imposed across the city after these things happen or any city or any state. So I think that there's a decent amount, if people are really interested in it, I would imagine that both at in the voting booth and in city council hearings and in discussions with city council members, I would imagine that there's a, an amount of power towards more accountability into the system. How would we find out about judges to find out if they're worth reelecting or not? Like, how would we not even worth it, right? Because I'm not asking you to take any political stand or anything. 
I'm just wondering, like, how do we get that information to find out whether they need to be held accountable or not? How do we find out? So the Bar Association puts out a list of recommendations, but it's interesting. So eConsul put out a report a while ago that showed statistically the single greatest predictor of judicial election is your position on the ballot, right? So we're a single party city. Everyone is, you know, a Democrat for the most part. There's a lot of names. People don't know a lot about folks. So people go in and they push who's ever on the top, you know, the first person, the person who was listed first in the first column, like outright won the election. I don't remember the numbers, but, and so I remember eConsul put out a report and they controlled for, right, bar association recommendation, party backing or not, so on and so forth. And they found that, you know, the biggest predictor was your position on the ballot. So on some levels, you know, it can be some, and, and that I believe is picked randomly somewhere. So you, you've got decision makers that are somewhat elected in an imperfect system maybe. And, and then again, so juvenile courtrooms are closed to the media for the most part. So you don't have reporters in there and there's not a huge amount of aggregation of what's happening and, and made public. So I do think that there's uh, perhaps poor voter ability to make educated decisions for sure. If that is if voter oversight is the only actual mechanism, now nah, I don't think that there's perfect information by any means, but it would be the bar associations rec uh, puts out recommendations. And so not voting the first person on the ballot would be like the first thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, I'll say even as somebody who's informed, it is very difficult, right? There's a lot of candidates and how do you sift through it when someone goes to retention election, there's more information obviously because you, they've been sitting for a long period of time, but it's tough to say, and you don't know where they're going to get assigned. And, and so even all of that, but yeah, it's, it is not a perfect system by any means. Are there any other sources that you can recommend? I heard you say the Bar Association. Are there any other sources that you can recommend for people to actually be more informed around the judges we elect? I think it's the you know, right. I think committee of who the, the normal suspects who put things out, I believe put things out, but yeah, to be honest, I think that when you start to dig in juvenile justice in general, it's, there's a little bit of a black hole in terms of available data on performance of provider. Like it's not, I don't want to single the judiciary as anything significantly different than anything else, right? It just, that was one place when you asked about collective action, that's, that's a place where there's actually voting power. Um, but yeah, there's not a ton of go try and find statistics about performance of anything. And there's not a ton, right? So I think that the public demanding or asking for more accountability and actually all of this is fueled by public tax dollars, right? So it's our money. Although there is obviously some other money. It's not all local money, but some levels it's not a, and, and that's talking about accountability before too. It's like, these are businesses, nonprofits are businesses. Kids can't in juvenile justice just take their business elsewhere because they're court ordered and they're children. So if no one is making people provide good services, it's not like a normal business of, oh, I'm setting up a website, an e-commerce website. And if my website is worse than Joe Schmo's website over here, I'm going to lose my customer to Joe Schmo's website. The question's a little different in juvenile justice because the kid can't just take her business to Joe Schmo's website. They're court ordered into your program, so they have to stay. So again, that's all kind of backed. And at child welfare, there is the, I know there's the CUA report cards that were, that were being made public, right, for a while. There is no equivalent to that in juvenile justice.
Yeah. And so basically one of the things it would be possible to advocate for is even transparency in the sharing of those measures, if there are any. But the creation and the transparency of measures that allow us to look at, okay, what is this big picture around how juvenile justice is performing in our city? How is it connected to the folks we're electing? How has it shifted in the past five years? All those kind of questions that right now it sounds like, uh, so shifting the black hole from like bringing some light to the black hole pretty much. Yeah. And it seems like there are efforts, right? So I don't want to paint a dire picture. Folks are trying. It's just, it's tough with, when you get to that too, it's tough with, you're talking about juveniles and juvenile court records. And so data sharing in general is, it's just, it's sticky wickets. I mean, it's Philly or Pennsylvania is no different. Um, These are like tough national questions and does kind of, there's a bit of a paradox sometimes of in protection of juvenile confidentiality and juvenile interest and confidentiality. Are we harming kids by making it so nobody can access certain things that could make services better for them? And so that's the the constant push and pull with transparency is how do you as a multi-stakeholder group set something up that allows you to see what's going on and help advocate for kids, but also protect what should be protected information that shouldn't get out into the public because they're kids. And so I think that there's some crisscross there, wherever you land on that matrix depends on kind of where you stand. Any last thoughts and how can people contact you? Probably the best way to contact me, I guess I would say, you know, LinkedIn, my professional LinkedIn, maybe. Uh, I'm not really too big on social media these days, but I do have a LinkedIn, which people could find me if they wanted to reach out would be a way to do it for sure. Any last thoughts? No, any last questions? Just like, what is your advice? I think when we talk about systems, often people go into a space of losing hope because it feels really overwhelming. And you do a lot of data and big picture thinking. I'm curious, what advice do you have for people to stay engaged? I mean, I'll be honest, it is tough at times, right? So there's coalition building and stakeholder building and systems weren't always set up to allow a ton of transparency or allow for some of these things. So I would say, honestly, it's important for me, it's tough. Like I'm not around kids as much as I used to be. So sometimes to remind yourself why you're doing it and, and it's ultimately these aren't data points or just decision points. These are, you know, children and children's lives. And the more you can remind yourself of that and the more you can also just not see kids as little criminals, right? Kids in the juvenile justice system are more than like the system treats them as. They're not just little criminals, right? They're children and they may have not committed any offense at all, right? And so they're just kids. And so the more you can remind yourself of that and put yourself in circumstances where you can see a child as a child and understand why it's important we do the best things for them, you know, there shouldn't be any arguments beyond that, right? Everyone should be working in the best interest of children. That's why we all got into our jobs. Thank you, Adam Serlin. It was great to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at 
collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says donate, become a supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.